I have the, the privilege of um, kicking us off um, or setting the stage for a new series that we'll be starting next week as Walt will lead us in through the book of Joshua. So this morning, my main goal is to glorify God through the preaching of his word, but also to be the hype man um, in hopes that you will come back next week. So I figured this is a good spot to be at because if I just butcher the sermon, then um, the bar has been set really low. So it can only go up next week and hope you'll come back. And if the bar has been set really high, it can only go higher because Walt is much better preacher than I am. So uh, please hope you'll come back next week. Um, with that said, if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Numbers chapter 20. And we'll be reading from verse 1 to 13. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 to 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here? both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its waters. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with, with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarrel with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that um, this morning... Our nation may be really excited about the Super Bowl, but Father, would you give us a renewed sense of refreshment and excitement for your grace? May we as your people value Christ. May the gospel be the treasure that we delight in and the treasure that we return over and over for sustenance and strength and hope. So, Lord, we pray that in the preaching of your word, in the listening of your word, may the gospel be our treasure. And, Father, would you show us Christ through this passage. May Christ be glorified. May Christ be what your people hold on to. We pray all this in his name. Amen. There's a, there's a family that nobody likes to meet. They live, it is said, on 
complaining street. In the city of never are satisfied, behind the river of discontent and not beside, they growl at that and they growl at this. Whatever comes, something is amiss. And whether their station be high or humble, they're all known by the name of grumble. The weather is always too cold or too hot or too, too cold. Summer and winter alike, they scold. Nothing goes right in with the folks you meet down on that gloomy complaining street. They growl at the rain, and they growl at the sun. In fact, the growling is never, ever done. And if everything pleased them, there isn't a doubt that they growl that there'd be nothing to grumble about. But the strangest thing is that no one of the same can be brought to acknowledge his own family name. For never a grumbler, a grumbler will own that he is connected with it all, for you see. And the worst thing is that if anyone stays amongst them too long, he will learn their ways. And before he dreams of the terrible jumble, he's adopted in the family of grumble. The Bible tells us that the Israelites are the grumble family. The book of Numbers helps us see how grumbling progresses and how grumbling can be harmful to one's relationship with God. And it teaches us a very sobering reality about the danger of grumbling that is unquenched. Nevertheless, Numbers also shows us the overwhelming grace of God that remains gracious and doesn't succumb to grumbling. And often the book of Numbers is one of those books that we skim over or skip, skip over if you're doing a yearly Bible reading plan because you go from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you're just tired. <laughs> and you don't want to go through a book called Numbers. So you skip to Deuteronomy and maybe you'll go to Joshua where the exciting fighting happens. But Numbers, as I was studying this passage, presents to us an amazing opportunity to gaze at the amazing grace of God. So here's a one-sentence summary of our passage this morning. God's grace is abundant. It's not even a sentence. God's grace is abundant. In our time together, I want us to walk through this narrative and observe three things. The sin of Israel, the sin of Moses, and the Savior. The sin of Israel, the sin of Moses, and the Savior. So first, the sin of Israel. Starting in verse 1, in chapter 20, we're told that the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Zin, and they stayed in Kadesh. Now, if you need a reminder, Kadesh bordered Canaan. Canaan was the promised land that God brought his people out of to take into. And in verse 1, this is the second time that Israel and Moses camped at Kadesh. Why? Because the first time it happened when Moses led the people out of Egypt, and we read in Numbers chapter 13 that the first generation of Israelites camped in Kadesh, and they sent spies to scope out the land of Canaan. And they, these spies came back, and they reported that there's no way, there's just no way they could defeat the inhabitants of Canaan in battle. 
I mean, imagine you're, you're a soccer coach and you take your whole team for a match and you travel all the way to Spain and some of your team members during the day before the match, they go out and scope out the, te- the opposing team's practice session. And once they've seen that, they get so discouraged, they come back to you and they say, coach, we're out. No way. They're monsters. I don't know what they feed them in Spain, but they're monsters. I know we came all this way. I know. Tickets were expensive. But they're monsters. We, we don't even want to try. Just, just take us back home. We want to go home. How would you feel? <laughs> Except for Caleb and Joshua, the other ten spies convinced the whole nation that God's promises cannot be true. I mean, this was the generation that a few days ago saw the Egyptian army wiped out by a single act of God's wrath. This was the generation that a few days ago saw the power of God rain down upon a whole nation of Egypt through the ten plagues. This was the generation who walked with God through the desert as God was in the form of a pillar of clouds and fire. This was the generation whose hearts, after all they've experienced, after all they've seen, after all they've been taught by Moses, still could not believe in God's promises could be true. The result was that a trip that should have only taken about two weeks into Kadesh got extended to 40 years because of their faithlessness in Kadesh. And it is in Kadesh that Moses pleads with God for mercy and God lets the people live. But instead, in Kadesh, the first time around, God pronounces that the first generation of Israel, because of their faithlessness, they will not enter the promised land, but their children will. Harsh, harsh punishment. So verse 1 is really round 2. Verse 1 is a sobering reminder that sin has consequences and God will keep his word. Verse 1 presents to us the first tension in our story, and that is this. Will the second generation get it right? Will the second generation, in the second try, trust God? And the answer is no. Because immediately in verse 2, we read that the people were thirsty and they began quarreling with Moses and with Aaron. And their complaint sounded very much like their forefathers found in Exodus chapter 17. The whole community of Israelites left the desert of sin and traveled from place to place as the Lord commanded them. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they complained to Moses by saying, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people were thirsty for water there. They complained to Moses and asked, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Was it to make us, our children, and our livestock die of thirst? You you could easily miss this, but Miriam's death is recorded in verse 1. And that is to make the point that the sin of Miriam's generation, the previous generation, did not die with them, but it lives on in the hearts of the new generation. Now, what does this tell us? At the very least, it tells us this. Sin, sin is a constant factor from one generation to the next. There is no generation, no ethnicity, no culture, no socioeconomic group that is unaffected by sin. Our society likes to believe in the inherent goodness of all mankind. 
Or perhaps in tabula rasa, that people are blank slates, that they pick up evil as they go. But Scripture reminds us that sin is actually an inescapable reality from one generation to the next. And even our best efforts in wanting to live a perfect moral life is unachievable, no matter how many rounds we get. Now, let me offer some practical observations from this. If you're not a Christian here today, we're so glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian here today and you find Christianity and the idea of the existence of God just unbelievable and utter nonsense, can I suggest to you that it's not logic that stands in the way of your belief, but it's sin. See, because the first step towards genuine faith and belief in God does not happen through a logical presentation and acknowledgement of facts, though it may help. But rather, genuine faith happens, it begins through remorse and repentance in the heart. See, the struggle to believe in God is not a matter of the present with all the technological advances that may present to us reasons to doubt. But it's a timeless issue since the presence of sin in the world. But on the other side of the spectrum, sin also affects belief in God for Christians. Because underneath a complaining heart lies a heart of doubt in God's promises. See, Christians may not struggle so much with the existence of God, but sin affects our belief in the entrusting of ourselves to God. We like control. Sin makes our hearts question God's goodness and especially His commands when we don't like them. Sin makes our hearts question things, questions like, does God really want me to keep 52 Sundays a year holy? Come on. Do I really need to give money to the church sacrificially at all? Come on, be reasonable. <laughs> Do I really need to tell people about Jesus? That just sounds annoying. Do I really need to confess my sins and repent of them? That just seems unnecessary. Can I really find rest t- in spending time in reading God's word as opposed to working out, watching TV, or doing a house project? And sin makes us makes our hearts say, no. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. See, the problem of the Israelites was not the lack of water. It was sin. It was the lack of trust in God, and as a consequence, they complained. Certainly, Moses was not a stranger to rebellion, attacks, and complaints. But man, you have to be crazy I mean, you must be crazy to continue in a job where you're the main target of anger, frustration, and complaints from the very people whom you're called to love and lead. I hear parents never have to go through this. Um, I mean, praise God, right? Praise God, this never happens at your jobs. Thank goodness this never happens at church. Look at verse 2 to 5 with me. The people assembled themselves against Moses. They quarreled with Moses and Aaron. They blamed Moses. You brought us out to die. You made us leave Egypt. You are the reason we're hungry and thirsty. This is all your fault. This is all your fault. It wasn't just one person. It was a whole group of people. 
And against the attacks of the people, Moses does something very unusual. Moses, having dealt with accusations with the first generation for 40 years, when it happens again, we read in verse 6 that he prays for them. Verse 6 tells us, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. This expression of falling of, on one's face before God is, an in, is a picture, is an expression of intercessory forgiving prayer. And we see an example of this in Numbers chapter 16. When Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and plead with God to forgive the people for their rebellious hearts, and God spares them. See, Moses goes and he prays for his people. Moses is a good mediator. Instead of countering with accusations with anger or justification, he forgives and intercedes for their sins before God. He pleads with God for mercy. For the very ones who are attacking him. How would you have reacted against this? I mean, this is, a, this is a picture of remarkable, remarkable godly leadership and humility. Forgiveness and intercession are essential for the people of God. Here's how it relates to us. This is why this is important. If you're a parent in this room, you're probably somewhat very familiar with Moses' situation where one of your child looks at you and says, this is your fault. My misery is your fault. My whole life is your fault. Maybe you've heard that this morning before you came in. But here's the calling Scripture gives to you, parents. As parents, in the face of rebellion, in the face of blame, you're called to be an intercessor for your children's sins. Now, Jesus is the ultimate intercessor for them. Yes and amen. I believe that and I affirm that with my whole heart. But he's called you to be a representative, earthly intercessor, an agent through whom forgiveness can be experienced and it can be tangibly seen. When a child yells at your face that it's your fault, the last thing you want to do is forgive them. You want to retaliate. But that opportunity, that opportunity is a golden chance to show them that you, in the the place of authority, have a place to be their intercessor, to to experience deep forgiveness. Sometimes your children, especially if they're young, they may take a long time before they realize what they've done wrong and may take a long time in repenting and feeling remorse for their sins. And that's okay. The Spirit works in different times. But parents, you who are responsible in a place of leadership in your family for their lives are called to forgive, pray for, and lament in prayer for their sins. And pray that God will work in their hearts. That God will work in their hearts and bring repentance and salvation. This also goes for spouses. You cannot love and lead each other in holiness if in the moment you are attacked by your spouse, disrespected, unappreciated, your heart is unwilling to forgive, intercede, and lament on their behalf. I mean, when was the last time you and your spouse prayed together? 
I don't doubt that our church, people in our church may pray for your spouses, but when was the last time you actually prayed with them? When was the last time you actually went to them and said, hey, I'm about to pray, can I pray with you? What's, what's a prayer request that you have in your heart? Can you share that with me? Maybe you're serving in the children's Sunday school and a parent comes to you and says, you know, my child used to like going to church until they came into your class. And, um, and, it's, and they don't, they're not interested, they're bored, and they don't want to come back to church, and it's all your fault. As a leader in the church, in the face of blame, you can, you can either retaliate, well, <laughs> Sunday school really happens at home. Or, or you can be the first forgiver, the first agent of intercession on behalf of your accusers. At work, against ridicule, for your faith, in the face of discrimination, for being a Christian, our witness for the gospel cannot begin unless we've learned to forgive and intercede to God for the very people who are ridiculing us and attacking us. Church, God is the only judge. Yes and amen, but, yes and amen, but he reminds us in Numbers 20 that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. To be the first forgivers and the first intercessors, people who pray for our enemies, people who pray for God's mercy upon those who rebel against Him and against us, and we pray for their salvation and for repentance. So that was the sin of Israel. Secondly, let's take a look at the sin of Moses. So far, this story sounds like a story about Moses' greatness, how great of a leader Moses is. But as, he's, but as the saying goes, the bigger, you, the bigger you are, the harder you fall, cannot be more true in this instance. Starting in verse 10, we see that the Israelites are not the only ones doubting God, but Moses and Aaron sin against God. And the great tragedy of this chapter happens as a consequence of not the Israelites' sin, but Moses' sin. Moses will not be allowed to set foot into the, in the promised land. Now, in order to understand, this is a tough, tough passage. But in order to understand why God lays such a heavy sentence upon Moses, we need to look at verse 8 to 9, where it says this. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its waters, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and the cattle. If you're, if you're an engineer here in this room, you're probably very appreciative of the clarity of God's instructions here. I mean, the goal, the main goal is to what? Number one, quench the thirst of the Israelites, which means that what? 1.1, take the staff. Okay. 1.2, go before the people. 1.3, speak to the rock. 1.4, drink. 1.5, maybe praise God. Right? It doesn't get more clear than this. But we read in verse 10 that instead of speaking to the rock, Moses speaks his own words to the people, and he calls them rebels. Rebels. Moses is a bad engineer. He breaks protocol. I mean, instead of functioning as the prophet of God to speak the words of God, he functions as a prophet of himself. Now, we have to stop and ask the question, what happened that led him to break protocol? 
Because a moment ago, he was forgiving them and he was praying for them, and now he seems to be lashing out in anger. Psalm 106, verse 33, is actually very helpful here, where it says this, For they made his spirit bitter, and Moses spoke rashly with his lips. As great of a leader Moses was, sin wins over his heart still. And he gives into anger, and he gives into bitterness, We're not sure exactly what caused this, but maybe on his way back, he was overwhelmed with the grief over the loss of Miriam, his sister, as we're told in verse 1. Maybe he was just feeling very fatigued in body and soul after 40 plus years of leading the Israelites through the wilderness, complaining over and over and attacking him. But nevertheless, Moses' circumstances revealed anger in Moses' heart, and it overtook him. So what does Moses do? He takes a staff, and against God's commands, he strikes the rock twice. And maybe if you know your Bible, if you read through Exodus, maybe you're thinking, wait a second, that sounds really familiar. Wasn't there another time when Moses struck the rock and water flowed out for the, for the people of Israel to drink? Yes, that actually happened in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, when the previous generation was in Kadesh, camping in Kadesh, God tells Moses that God Almighty, that the Lord of heaven and earth, will stand in front of the rock. And as Moses is told to strike the rock, the sovereign God of heaven will be struck first. And water will flow out. Now, this is a picture that God will humble himself so that his people may live. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, tells us this, helps us understand this foreshadow when he says that the rock, this rock, was Christ. The striking of the rock the first time was to be a symbolic act to show Israel that they have a relationship with a God who's willing to condescend to stand before them before their, their um, rebellion, a God who's willing to humble himself, a God who's merciful and good and take the strike so that his people can receive water, can receive mercy. But the second time around, when God is not standing before the rock, Moses breaks protocol. And as he strikes the rock without the presence of God, this is symbolic in that Moses now is himself as God before the people. It is not God who gives water, it is me who gives water. And I will show you. Bible scholars make the point that Moses' statement in verse 10, where it says, shall, this question of shall we bring water for you out of this rock, is a statement of authority and not certainty. Meaning that Moses is not asking whether they're capable, or he and Abel are capable to bring water, but rather should they bring water, even though God tells them they should. In simple words, Moses is pretty much saying this to the people. I don't want to do this. You rebellious people, you're hopeless. You're never going to change. You don't deserve my grace. See, Moses' sin that was so egregious was that Moses had a view of God's grace that is too low. And his view of himself was too high. 
and by putting himself in the seat of judgment, the one who determines who's worth some grace and who's not, which only God alone can do, God's charge against Moses is that he did not believe that the grace of God is proper and failed to uphold God as holy. What was Moses' great sin? Moses' great sin was that as the mediator between God and the people, he presented a picture. He was to be a representation of the picture of God as different from any other God in the known world. But his sin, when he takes on the seat of judgment, he's presenting a picture that God is the same as every other pagan God at the time. A God who rewards based on performance. A God who is not gracious enough to forgive. But also, he fails to keep God as holy. Meaning, to separate, to keep separate, distinct, the only God who deserves to be God. And instead, Moses presents a picture of God that is not, that he is not worthy to be praised, but rather there's someone else who has authority and someone else people should fear, and that is himself. Now, how does this play out in our lives? Here's how. There are some of us here, which I am the first and foremost, we have too high of a view of ourselves. We have very high self-esteems. Judging other people comes very naturally. We judge people based on their jobs, their past histories, their mannerisms, their amount of knowledge, the way they eat their steaks, their quirks, their families, life choices, and we shake our head and we consider some people not worthy of our attention and time. For others of you in this room, perhaps you have too low of a view of yourself and too high of a view of other people. You put other people on high pedestals and are always feeling inadequate. You're measuring against them and you feel inadequate, unlovable, inescapable, and hopeless. Perhaps even doubting that God can save and fix you because you're just a complete mess. As a friend of mine likes to say, you're a soup sandwich. Have you ever tried making a sandwich with soup? When we judge people, either too low or too high... We're doing so out of this belief that performance, someone's performance or our own performance, determine worth. We stop living a life that portrays grace and instead instead propagate that performance, accomplishments, and riches determine anybody's worth. Numbers 20 is a sobering reminder That whether you've been a follower of Christ for years and years, maybe a leader in the church in charge of many people, sin is crouching like a lion waiting to devour you. Sin is crouching like a lion waiting to devour you. And we've probably heard this if you've been around the church long enough. You've heard this expression used to refer to sin a lot. But this past weekend, I got a new glimpse of what this means. Um, There's this Netflix show called um, Night on Earth. It's a documentary about animals, and they follow a bunch of animals during nighttime because now they have ultra-night vision cameras, and they're able to see everything as if it's daylight. Highly recommend it. Uh, I've only watched one episode, though, so don't take my full word for it. But in the first episode on this, on this show, um, they follow a pride of lions, and they analyze their behavior at night. And everybody assumed that lions sleep at night but they actually sleep during the day. And it was fascinating to hear that lions 
prefer to hunt during the time of the month of the new moon instead of daylight. Because during the new moon, that's, that's when the fields of Africa are, the visibility is non-existent. It's pitch dark. You can't see anything. The world becomes pitch dark. And lions are patient, they're hungry, and they're lethal. Church, when you are focused on your own worth through your own performance, or when you focus on other people because of their worth and their own performance, your world pushes the light of the world out, and it becomes dark. And when it becomes dark, when we we become self-absorbed as a leader with too high of a view of ourselves or as a person engulfed in self-pity, in the darkness of self-pity and shame, sin crouches until visibility around us disappears because sin is patient, sin is hungry, and sin is lethal. Ironically, as I was preparing for this message, I could see the appeal to just end the sermon right here and say, don't mess up or you'll end up like Moses. Um, And that would have saved me 10 hours of preparation. And it was very tempting. But that would have left my soul and yours thirsting for water. Because guilt does not refresh, it only dries our souls. Shame does not encourage, but makes us afraid to obey. Refreshment only comes by gazing at the grace of God as we must look. And so we must look at how God deals with rebellious people and even his rebellious mediator, which leads us to our third and last point. We look at the Savior. Look at verse 11 with me, if you have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen for you. Moses, he strikes the rock, and though God had no responsibility to give water by this act of disobedience, we read that water came out abundantly. Abundantly. It wasn't a trickle. It wasn't a stream. It wasn't even a river. But this word abundantly connotes this overflowing, overpowering, endless supply. Verse 11 tells us that the whole congregation drank and their livestock. Now, why is this detail in there? Why is this detail of and their livestock also drank in there? Well, the reason is because in Exodus chapter 12, when the people are coming out of Egypt... It is recorded that about 600,000 able fighting men came out from Egypt. 600,000. Now, assuming that each person had a wife, that's well over, a mil- uh, well over a million. You add servants and foreigners and kids and farm animals, you're well over two. Now, the text tells us all All the people drank and their livestock. There was no need to ration. There was no need to ration water. It was so abundant that the cattle also got to drink. See, God wasn't being stingy here. He's not bargaining for for obedience with the Israelites. He says, well, fine, you you obey 90% of my commands. I'll trickle the water, and until you're good enough, I'll make it burst. But in the sight of disobedience, he opens the floodgates. And he gives water abundantly. How gracious is God in the midst of sins committed against him? 
when you and I sin against Him, He is abundantly gracious. How gracious is God in the midst of your sins and failures, your doubts, your disobedience, which seems to spur new, new every day. His grace is abundant for it. His grace abounds all the more. Enough to forgive and enough to restore. So if you're here today who's been feeling far away from God for whatever you've done or not done, brothers and sisters, God's grace is abundant. There is nothing he can't forgive. There is no sin he won't remove if you go to him in trust. God's, sin, God's grace for his church is abundant. But finally, we have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is this. We have Moses. How is God gracious to Moses? Because it seems like there's only judgment and no mercy for the many, many years of service that Moses gave to the Lord. Shouldn't God have been merciful by pardoning Moses and letting him go to the promised land? No. No. Brian Chappell, reflecting on this passage, he gives the following insight. He says this, For God to allow Moses to take Israel into the promised land as though a human were their deity would not have been gracious to the nation or to Moses. Instead, God protects his people's relationship with himself by denying Moses entry. Now, this is what Brian Chappell is saying. The Israelites were allowed to march on to the promised land even though they rebelled and they complained, because they had a mediator who pleaded for them, Moses. Moses interceded for them. This was an official title and a role. And the mediator's role, much like lawyers in some ways today, was to defend the offenders and to be a channel of mercy and blessing from God to man based on their integrity. In fact, we see this happening in Exodus chapter 32, which is the golden calf incident, where Moses pleads with God and even sacrifices himself so that Israel will be spared. This is not to say that Moses was without sin. But up to this point, Moses had been faithful and had been obeying God's direction. But in this moment, Moses, as a mediator, when he sins, he's rejecting God's authority. His integrity is destroyed. The very thing where his mediatorial role stands upon, that is completely destroyed. And that makes him insufficient to continue in his role as he leads the people of Israel into the promised land. All to say that for God to allow his people to be led by an insufficient mediator into the promised land would be setting them up for failure. For the sake of Israel, God disqualifies Moses. For the sake of Moses, God disqualifies Moses. However, God's, you're wondering, okay, where is the grace aspect in this? God's grace to Moses is this. That his people will continue into the land through Joshua. And the promise given to Moses is to look forward to another mediator who will not fail. See, God's grace to Moses is in the assurance that God himself will be his great mediator to plead for his forgiveness and be the agent through whom righteousness is granted to Moses. Because Moses' prohibition to step into the promised land was only momentary. Because in Matthew chapter 17, 
When Jesus, the perfect mediator, the one who has a perfect integrity, who never breaks, when he goes up on this mountain in the land of Canaan, and in his transfiguration, he meets two people there. One was Elijah, and the other one was Moses. Grace is abundant. Grace is overflowing. There was once a very successful lawyer who, after hearing the gospel for the first time, he gave his life to Christ for he had found that Jesus' defense for his sins was so compelling. And convicted in his heart, he sent out 20 letters through the mail offering his services to convicted criminals whom nobody dare represent, free of charge. One by one, the letters returned, and the, lawyers, and the lawyer noticed that they were unopened and undelivered because the convicts feared that this was another lawsuit against them. And the days went by, and he received one that was open, read, and a signed letter back. Surprised, accepting his services, surprised, the lawyer paid a visit to this convict and told him that he, out of the 20, had opened the letter and asked him, what made you open it? And the convict replied, Mister, I'm on death row. If there's a slight chance I can get a lawyer on my side, what do I have to lose? Friends, in your worst days, when you feel like you have nothing to give to God, Jesus is your mediator who pleads your case. In your worst sins today and tomorrow, when you, have, when you feel like God should disown you, Jesus is the mediator who stands for you. And there will come a day when all of us will stand in front of God Almighty and will be asked, why should you be let in into eternal life? There's no amount of good works we've done that can stand before us or money that can buy us in. There's no degree that will grant you entry, no rank that will open those doors, but may you be able to point to Jesus as your great mediator, the one who covers your sins with his abundant grace, with his abundant righteousness, and may you be able to point to him as your hope and as your why. Let's pray. Father, You give us abundant grace, and our eyes are so often so blinded to see that. In our greatest failures, moral failures, in our greatest times of doubt and complaint against you, though you have every right to disown us, Jesus, you still plead our case. Your testimony, your witness, your defense is eternal. And we pray that we may gaze upon that and may that transform our hearts. May it transform our hearts to obey and to love you. Father, thank you for the great mediator that we have in Christ. The one who takes our sin away. The one who takes condemnation and shame and guilt. And puts it on himself. We thank you for that abundant grace. 
And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and just be amazed at the grace of Jesus Christ.